Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm one of Roger Revelle's daughters, Carolyn, and it is my pleasure to introduce Ashok Kosla, who was an undergraduate at Cambridge University when I first met him, part of our international group of friends there. As the son of a university professor and diplomat, he had lived abroad most of his life, and I was skeptical when he talked of returning to his native India someday and going into politics. I questioned whether he knew enough about his country to succeed in that dream. I greatly underestimated him. Ashok continued a close connection with our family when he chose Harvard to pursue a doctorate in experimental physics. Our father had recently become the director of Harvard's Center for Population Studies, and Ashok assisted him in designing and teaching the pioneering course in population resources and the environment. That course, known among students as Pops and Rocks, was where Al Gore learned about the dangerous rise in carbon dioxide. After returning to India, Ashok set up and headed the Office of Environment in the Government of India, the first such agency in a developing country. Later, he was director of InfoTerra, the global environmental pro- information system of the United Nations Environment Program. Since 1983, he's been chairman of Development Alternatives in New Delhi, dedicated to local, national, and global uh, sustainable development. Ashok has been a board member of numerous global environmental organizations, including the Club of Rome and the International Union for Conservation of Nature, where he's the new president, and many more organizations listed in your program. He has been an advisor to, among others, the World Bank, the UN Development Program, and the Indian government. Ashok has lectured at several universities and has authored more than 300 papers and articles, as well as editing The Survival Equation with our father. Ashok has received many prizes, including the UN Sasakawa Environment Prize, the premier global prize in the field. In his presentation speech for the Sasakawa Award, the executive director of the UN Environmental Program described Ashok as a legend in the realm of sustainable development and an individual who personifies the hopes and dreams of billions trapped in the indignity of acute deprivation. Please welcome Ashok Kosla. Thank you, Roland. I, um, I think it's quite uh, poetic that um, when I was looking for a job, I was always broke when I was a graduate student. I asked Carolyn, you know, how do I get some um, work to do? And she said, why don't you meet my father? And I got to know Roger. And to tell you the truth, my whole life changed ever after. Uh, At undergraduate um, college, I was uh, tutored by uh, Sir John Kendrew, who discovered the um, structure of the hemoglobin and got a Nobel Prize for that. I um, did my graduate studies with Norman Ramsey, who got a Nobel Prize for the atomic clock and many other things. And he was one of the few who actually shared it with his graduate students, so I have a small part of the 1989 Nobel Prize even. But no one I worked with was quite comparable to Roger. Um, Roger was uh, not just a friend, a guru, a teacher, but he was really family. 
Uh, I'm the only person in this symposium whose middle name is Ravel uh, talking today. So I'm really doubly honored that I was invited to come. And I have been looking forward to this event for many, many months, indeed many years. Roger was um, a great father, as you must have heard yesterday. Uh, for me, too, uh, I was very, very much in his family. And he was an extraordinary teacher. And lifelong learning is what he had and what he taught me uh, to go for, too. What I learned from Roger was uh, the importance of being curious and the importance of imparting what you know to others, the importance of thinking of all of humanity, all of the planet as one, the importance of looking at root causes. The environment was hardly known at that time. Rachel Carson's book could just come out, um, The Theory of Peak Oil by King Hubbard was a year old or two years old. Well, it was a little longer than that, but it was published recently. And here he was teaching a course on the environment, the very first in the world. And immediately before he even started it, the title of it was People, Resources, and the Environment. It was so far-reaching in his thinking that it's only today, after 40-odd years, that people have started to see the interrelationships between these different components uh, of the environmental problematic. As several speakers today have indicated, he really believed in observation and quantification. And in later life, he wasn't observing the seas as much, so he was quantifying. There was nothing he would think about without bringing out an envelope, the backside of which he would add up his numbers. He was totally committed to trying to understand the numbers. I remember many, many occasions he came to India several times, I think partly because of our relationship, but he always had a, a reason for it because he was one of the few non-Indians who actually had a, a government position in India. He was a member of the Education Commission of India, which is very rare. In India, you don't uh, normally invite people to tell you how to do things. We know everything already. <laughs> so, so he used to come uh, regularly. He always stayed with me. My little son used to call him Big Roger because he was quite a big guy. And Roger would call my son Little Roger. And we got along very well. And he would bring his grandchildren occasionally. He was, he was in and out of our house. But like my, myself, uh, Roger was a night person, so we would go late into the night with that uh, perennial glass of scotch and uh, whatever else, and um, we would um, think about how to change the planet. And sometimes we would call in one of the people who worked in the house, domestic help, and interrogate them for hours on end on their lives in the village, on how much they grow in their fields, and what kinds of earnings they have. And we. One evening, one, uh, one hour spent with Roger interviewing people, you could learn much more than reading a whole book written by economists. It was very interesting for me because I kept learning all the time I was with him. And I also learned how to learn. So even when he was not there, I think he left behind a huge legacy. 
And he was really into communication. Roger would work. I remember in Ninebow Street in Cambridge, uh, our little place for the population center, which is now named after him and Alan, um, we used to work through the night, writing and rewriting and re-rewriting maybe 15, 18, 20 drafts before it went to the Scientific American or to the Science Journal to be published. He was meticulous. He was a craftsperson, not just a scientist, but he really wanted perfection. So excellence was very important to him, and to some extent relevance. Some extent means, of course, we've just heard so many, many uh, uh, interventions just now that his whole life was devoted to relevance. But um, there was a thing about Roger, which I will just come to, that really we, he and I, did have a seeming difference of opinion. These were Roger's cherished professional commitments. Of course, he had one bigger commitment than these, and that was his family, which, of course, included me, so I was very happy with that. But basically, his professional commitments were all these, but one more that he and I were always arguing about for decades, and that was what he called the autonomy of science. He felt the scientist was the only person who could judge what should be done. And I thought that was partly true, because I was also a scientist at the time. Uh, but I also thought that the scientist has a responsibility to society, because I came from a country which had never got the benefits of science. Even though our first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was totally committed to the scientific endeavor, had set up policies that in the third world and developing countries were totally unique. We were... Um, a country that actually spent a huge amount of money on science, but science had not really delivered any goods for Scientists tended, in my experience, scientists in my country, to do the science of the West so they could get visiting professorships or jobs or get their papers published. They were not interested in solving the problems of society. And I myself, having worked in Cambridge and then in Harvard, had learned that scientists may say that they are curiosity-driven, but ultimately they seem to supply things that their local society and their national society really needs and cherishes. So I think we were probably talking cross-purposes, but this argument went on for 15 years. So when I got home, um, he had written a letter. It was um, one letter rather um, flamboyant in the sense that I'm sure uh, it wasn't exactly correct. But he got me the job of setting up the Ministry of Environment in India. I was 31 years old. I was a director general because I, to be a minister, you have to be an MP. And I reported directly to Mrs. Gandhi, who was then the prime minister. And this was a very powerful job. And Roger and I had a terrific time. During the next five years, we were doing all kinds of outrageous things which allowed us to really bring the idea of environment of the kind that we had developed at Harvard, uh, the holistic approach to how do we manage people and resources. So we will come back to the autonomy of science in a minute, but I just think I want to say that Roger grudgingly probably um, supported what I had to do. And I'm going to be talking really not about Roger, 
but about the impact Roger had through me on my country. And I'd like to share some of that uh, with you. We were all about the great connectedness of the world. The Himalayan um, glaciers, we just heard about them this morning, uh, the circulation of oceans, the atmosphere, everything. And Roger and I came to the issue of environment at the time in the early, mid-60s, when technology really had solved so many problems. Ozone, I'm sorry, uh, Freons, uh, DDT. Uh, there were a variety of miracle compounds, miracle solutions, miracle technologies that were making the lives of people better, longer, happier, more fulfilled. We hadn't yet hit any of the negative side effects at that point. So it was quite remarkable that we actually had a course on the environment. But these problems were about to hit. And both Roger and I were basically by DNA, I suppose, um, people who believed in a better world through technology, through science. So we actually were always looking for how do you use science to the for the benefit of mankind, humankind. And uh, we were writing a book together, uh, editing a book, picking up things which either we wrote or other people wrote, in which there were things like, already in 1967, 68, uh, chapters on peak oil, on uh, the issues of uh, DDT, and uh, varieties of other issues that were really over the horizon for most people. Especially the fact when, uh, when uh, Roger, I remember he told me a story when he first went to Bangladesh, uh, during Ken when, when President Kennedy sent him there to look at issues of water. One day he got out of the hotel and he saw this mass of people and he was already kind of oppressed by it. And when he w reached home in the evening, he was thinking about it and he says, and then suddenly I realized there was only half the people. There were no women out there. So this incredible press of humanity essentially got him thinking. The world can't go on like that. So that was, I think, one driving force for him to take on the job of professor of population studies at, at Harvard. At the time that we met and started this work together, the population was around, I guess, about three and a half billion. Today, uh, what is it, 40 years later, uh, it's now getting close to six and a half, seven billion. Uh, the resources, we knew, were being massacred. The economy was growing rapidly. Uh, the economy since then has more than doubled. And the results were deserts. Uh, I'm sorry, this is 15,000 square kilometers per year in India. I forgot to change the slide. It's 50,000 for the world. And, of course, we've seen this over and over again, but you see the black arrow, which shows you where we were when he and I started working on our course, NATSI 118, and this is where we are now. Uh, same applies to the issues of uh, temperature rise. Uh, the same applies to everything else. Um, and as a consequence, we are now seeing more and more extreme events and issues of drought and 
floods and agricultural productivity and vector-borne diseases and many other issues. Water, of course, was very important in Roger's life. He used to tell me about uh, how California had um, engineered its way out of uh, water stress. And um, had, we had worked out a wonderful theory, which was published in Science, uh, called the Ganges Water Machine, which was conjunctive use of groundwater and surface waters in such a way that the endogenetic plane alone could produce enough food for half of humanity. It was a remarkable idea, and we, he and I spent many, many years trying to sell it to the government of India. But unfortunately, uh, it was an American idea, and America was not too popular at the time. Forest depletion, uh, endangered species. Now, these were all issues that were keep coming up all the time in our work, in our teaching, in our, uh, all the other stuff. But here we were in La Jolla, whenever I came to visit him, this was a little later, I, this is a photograph taken after I started developing alternatives. But it was wonderful to talk with him because he was always insisting on the, on the quantification and understanding the background to all that uh, happens. Now what I'm going to talk about from now is about what, what um, uh, I learned from him but had to apply on my own. This is how about 30% of the world lives. This is how the rest live. This is a world in which there's great inequity. And the thing I learned from Roger was not only his generosity of spirit, not only his curiosity and single-mindedness about learning the truth, but also the sense of outrage. I found deep down what Roger basically had a profound, profound sense of outrage that the world should be so, so unjust, so inequitable. And that was why I think he kept going back, initially to Pakistan, but then later to Bangladesh. And then finally, when I got back, he used to visit at least two or three times a year. And we had enormous, enormous uh, intellectual as well as practical uh, work together. Uh, billions of people today live without clean drinking water. They are walking three, four hours a day. At least their women are walking three or four hours a day, getting water and fuel and just the basic necessities of life. More and more there are going to be people like this, eco-refugees. I work in a district in India which has a total population of 1.2 million. Out of them, 700,000, more than 60% have migrated because there's no water over there. Close their shutters and doors. That's the champagne glass theory of life. This is a champagne glass that appears on many UN uh, reports. It basically says that the top 20% get, 20% uh, uh, of the world gets about 85, 90, now close to 95% of the income and wealth. And it's growing. The gap between the bottom and the top is uh, getting wider and wider. And the ecological footprint of an industrialized country is now getting to be three, four, five, in some cases, eight times. The only reason the U.S. is 
sort of manageable at four or five is because it has a huge land area. But basically, most countries, normal size, are running. Now, what does an ecological footprint mean? It simply means the amount of land area that's needed uh, divided by the amount of land area you've got. So it takes five United States to keep this one single country going. The most amazing thing is that many other countries are also pulling down the capital that, that creation left for us. What are the causes? Well, there are consumption patterns, our production systems, our mindsets, our short time horizons, and all kinds of financial and economic systems that are not very, very conducive to this. And above all, there's also, not above all, but equally, there's the question of population growth. And that's what brought us together. We've got to now look at the triangle that we always had on our whiteboard in Harvard, that you, got, you cannot just look at the economic issues, but you've got to look at them together with the implications on the environment and on society, the implications on the trees and nature as well as people. That champagne glass inherently cannot be sustainable. And I'm going to try to prove to you the scientific reasons why it cannot be sustainable. Uh, <clears throat> there's the question of ecological rucksacks. Ecolo ecological rucksacks are the amount of material that you have to move in order to get one gram or one kilogram of the material you want to use. This is a very important concept because while we are very well aware of the issues of climate change and energy and the impacts of energy use. We don't realize it, but it's, the energy use is because we're moving a lot of material. The energy it, by itself is only can be used for heating and cooling and a little bit of light. But the largest part of the impact on nature comes through the fact that we're actually moving materials. In fact, if you leave out the ocean currents, the amount of material, physical material, that is being moved today by human action is comparable to geological flows in the crust of the, of the Earth. Now that is, to any scientist, quite frightening because that cannot but disrupt all the cycles, the biogeochemical cycles, the water cycles, and everything else. And this uh, issue of ecological rucksacks has become really important, and now I believe it's going to be, be one of the major issues in the, next, in the coming decades. And we've got to figure out ways in which what we're using in terms of materials has to be brought down. The industrial countries will have to start coming down immediately, just as they have to do for carbon. And the developing countries may have to go up a little bit, but they're going to have to go into a trajectory coming down as well, very, very fast too. Uh, this was already shown to some extent, by the Club of Rome in 1972 with this publication of this remarkable book called The Limits to Growth, a study done by the students and, and um, group of Jay Forrester uh, in MIT, which showed that if we continued the way we were, we could not but go into overshoot and collapse. Now, the funny thing is that they took, got the right period most people say they got it all wrong, but there are very few people who will any longer really deny that we've got some problems of that kind. These are the graphs from that book, 
which show that you're in trouble. Now, we come back to Roger. What I learned, even as an Indian and even as a person concerned with demography, what I learned from him was that the number of children, the fertility, the family, size of a family in a society depends on how well they live. I think he coined the phrase, development is the best contraceptive. If he didn't, he certainly knew it. And our whole course, which was on environment, uh, resources, uh, on population resources and environment, actually became a development course. Because we all realized that unless the poor in this world, which constitute more than half the people, uh, improve their lives, there was no chance that they would be able to bring their population growth. So we came to the conclusion, and this, these are all sort of uh, empirical-based studies, that if you have uh, a, a world in which you have high fertility, th th this is a curve really from the UN, from the UN, which shows for different circumstances you might have high fertility, medium fertility, and low fertility. Obviously, we have to figure out ways in which to get the world onto this green trajectory. And I'm going to tell you how I believe we have to do that. This is a diagram that's pretty crucial, and I'm not sure many people realize it. But this diagram shows different kinds of agriculture, food production systems. Over here, you have traditional types of agriculture where you put in one calorie of energy into the agriculture, uh, inanimate energy, and you get 10, 15, 20, 100 calories out as food energy. This is the way our parents and grandparents used to live. At this end, you have agriculture, which is the kind that you get in your supermarket, the food products in the supermarket, where you put in 500 calories in, and you get one food calorie out. So these are the different choices, technology choices, that you can make. This is up to us. There's nothing compelling us to be at this end or at that end. Our whole economic systems have been designed to push us more and more over here. And today, a very large part of our uh, meat and vegetable and fruit production is over here. And when you include all the costs of packaging and cooling and transport, bringing in out-of-season apples from New Zealand or whatever, you are adding a very large amount of energy. So while we're worrying about climate change, we need to look at what it is that's causing it, and this is a very large part of it. So I need you to keep this diagram in mind because I'm going to show you in a minute what are the different options we have. This is something I used to argue with Roger a lot about, technology choice. He kept saying, what do you mean by choice? I think he knew perfectly well what it was, but he just wanted, probably wanted to force me into being very rigorous in my thinking about it. But the issue of technology choice doesn't often come up in our thinking about the future of our planet or dealing with climate change or whatever. But it's precisely that that's causing a very large part of the problem. Not all of it, but a very large part. So then this led us into the issue of systems. What are systems? Systems that are actually greater than the sum of their parts, that, are counter, that often lead to counterintuitive outcomes. They have uh, feedbacks and delays built into them that make them so complicated that the human mind or the so-called common sense can't understand them. 
and they often lead to what is called overshoot and collapse. So we got into this quite heavily, and I personally went off on a little tangent to understand what efficiency meant, because all these economists are throwing this word efficiency at us and saying the markets are efficient and so-and-so is efficient, and I couldn't understand that because the efficiency seemed to me to have buried in it so much subsidy from various things like nature and, and government and everything else that, of course, it was the least cost because you didn't take account of the costs. So I started looking at the concept of efficiencies, and I came to the conclusion there are four levels of efficiency. The rated efficiency, the engineers talk about it, output over input, what is. And then I started finding things that were sort of potential efficiency, what should be, if you change a little bit here and tinker a little bit there. And latent efficiency, which what could be if you make fairly, fairly big changes, which might involve a certain amount of investment. And then there are systemic efficiencies, ones that would be if you changed your basic paradigms, basic expectations. Rated efficiency would be how do I tinker with my car and get more miles to the gallon from 16 to 18. Potential efficiency is what should be if I make a lighter car and a more efficient engine. A latent efficiency would be if I switched over to public transport as a major way of getting around. Systemic efficiency would be if I design my cities in such a way I don't need to get around too much. So these are various levels at which we have to think. And I wanted to apply these in my real life in India, which is what I basically would like to share with you. The thing I learned from... Um, my work at Harvard and, and subsequently was that if systems get out of whack, out of balance, they don't serve the purpose either of the ones that are being done in or of the people who are doing them in. Supposing a city gets too much of the investment from the government, let's say, it becomes, as Jay Forrester had already identified in the 1960s, so attractive that more and more people come in. It suffers from what is called the rebound effect. So ultimately, it hit back to square one. But if you, uh, and, and then, who suffers? Well, in the beginning, the rich, the city, or whatever, come out better for a while. And then the whole thing starts collapsing because the inner city's gone, or the jobs have gone, or whatever the reason is. And this is a very, it's an inherent property of systems partly because of those feedbacks and delays in the, in the feedback loops, that this is what is going to happen when things basically become one-sided. In a, in a country, if there are too many poor people, if too much of the government's attention is to the rich people and their policies are too based on what, what is the stock market index or whatever rather than what's needed in, in the countryside, you're going to end up not only for political reasons where there's a revolution, not only for social reasons where there is uh, a great deal of injustice, etc., but for ecological and physical reasons, it breaks down. And this curve is crucial for us to understand that if you hijack too much of the world's resources, you will be the one who ends up by paying the cost. This is true also at the international level. And I think 
the U.S. economy and the J Japanese economy right now are beginning to show some of these properties. The third world is some four billion people surviving, not even subsisting, on a landscape of poverty, inequity, vulnerability, and environmental degradation. The first world, people like you and me, because there's a bit of the first world in developing countries too, uh, some two billion odd people who are just simply mining the landscape, raping Mother Nature, and taking away its treasures and productive capacity, and basically destroying its health. The fundamental choices, well, if you live in the north, like here, the global north, uh, is it business as usual? Or can you improve it by fine-tuning? Or do you have to bring about systemic change? In the south, the equivalent of those questions would be, do I copycat? Do I take, uh, you know, the American way of life is my, my goal, uh, or do I piggyback uh, and take a few of the good lessons from different places and apply them, or do I leapfrog? Do I say, thank you very much, I don't want to be an American, I want to do it my way, but I do it like, like the state of Bhutan, for example. Now, I've color-coded these. You will have seen those previous ones um, in red, yellow, and green. The red slides are about business as usual. If you uh, want to pursue global competitiveness, you're automatically locked into copycat. You have no choice because you've got to compete. You have to use the same technologies in Japan as you do in North America, otherwise you won't be able to compete. And copycat basically takes you into uh, the Washington Consensus, large projects, inappropriate donor-driven technologies if you're in the South, resource-guzzling solutions. This is the way you do it. You know, everybody's so successful. Look at America. They live such a great life. And they've got Hummers. So let's have Hummers. Centralized management justified on the grounds of trickle-down. That's basically what uh, happens when you take a BAU approach. And this is what you get. This is in my city in Delhi. You get, you know, a good life. And it consists of going out there, digging out the oil, making massive roads, massacring the countryside, and ending up in the city dump. I mean, surely there's a better way to go. Um, efficiencies. We talk about efficiencies. It's easy to have efficient production if you throw all your waste and uh, pollution out into the rest of the public. It's easy to be efficient. According to the World Bank, 460,000 people in my country, quite some time back, um, die every year of external, what do you call it, outdoor pollution. This morning we heard that 1.5 million women and children, the equivalent figure in India is 400,000 again, die because of so-called indoor air pollution, which is a euphemism for the smoke from their wood stoves, from their cook stoves. 400,000 women in my country die every year prematurely. And when you say prematurely, they, you know, 30 years before their time. It's unacceptable. What did the scientists do for making a better wood stove? Nothing. Efficiency. 
That's an efficiency in agriculture. This is efficiency of uh, using pesticides and fertilizers. This poor woman in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, uh, near Madras, um, destroyed her whole land within seven years using modern agriculture. She basically is now ruined. Masters of the universe, we, we associate them with you know, Goldman Sachs and people, but actually they're the engineers, the ones who make all these kinds of big projects which actually mess nature up completely. Big engineering works, big transport systems, mining, high pressure, and agriculture that's over at this end. The one that produces one calorie for every four or five hundred calories in. That's a gold ring. How much do you think it weighs? 20 grams? Actually, if you include the rucksacks, it's 20 tons. Now, that's a lot of material to be moving around just for that little ring. But that's what we're doing to nature. And if you go the red route, business as usual, copycat, your champagne glass really stretches out. And you end up with high fertility because there are too many poor people, all of whom find their only fulfillment in life by having large families. Your ecological footprint becomes big, your demand and your versus your uh, biocapacity. Today, the ecological footprint of the world is, as you can see in this picture, 1.45. We're using almost half an extra world. In other words, we're drawing down the capital of our bioproductivity by 50%. That doesn't give us much time. And this is what happens. With the outcomes of the copycat, you basically increase the income disparities, you increase the ecological footprint, and you end up with overshoot and collapse. And that's what you're going to have when you're through. I mean, where else are you going to go? <clears throat> the pursuit of creating national wealth largely needs piggyback strategies. Uh, piggyback strategies are choosing some of the better models. You adopt factor of four. four factor of four is, a, is a, our jargon, our code word for reducing material use by a factor of four, maybe energy also. And these ones can be done with today's technologies. Fine-tuning, a little bit of change, miniaturized uh, appliances, sharing of underutilized assets. If you've got a washing machine in your house, how many hours do you use it? Why not have uh, shared access, uh, which is what the laundrette does, uh, and save material? Durable products, public facilities, and so on. So, factor of four is about potential efficiency. You remember the four hierarchy? Well, it's about potential efficiency. And there are books on that subject, also by the Club of Rome, uh, which show that we have nonsense systems. The study by the Wuppertal Institute in Germany showed that the strawberry yogurt, the carton of strawberry yogurt, which is a favorite breakfast food in, in, in Germany, travels 5,280 kilometers before it reaches your breakfast table. This lady who did the study showed that you could eat better, better break, uh, yogurt, strawberry yogurt, with, with, with a different kind of production system uh, if it traveled less than 280. 
You know, why do they do that? They do that because there's huge subsidies involved. We're not counting the cost that nature pays, but we're not even counting the cost that, that society pays. Because those autobahns are free, the oil uh, products are subsidized. You know, it's, it's cheaper for them to send the cotton all the way from Stuttgart to Budapest to get it pr the label printed because ink is cheaper in Hungary. I mean, the whole system is geared to destroying the planet. And here you have these kinds of uh, agricultural things, and then you have m different kinds of automobiles. Um, I just go very fast through them. Different kinds of energy uh, buildings, efficient buildings, different kind of light bulbs. These are all factor four type solutions. Refrigerators, even clothes can be had now, which give you some hope. The resulting thing is not overshoot and collapse. It's sort of overshoot. Okay, now what sustainable development needs is sustainable livelihoods. Um, this is the National University of India. It's named after Nehru. Who else? I mean, you were either Gandhi or a Nehru in India, so this one is, was given to Nehru. Um, it's real macho. You know, it's, it, it's, India has arrived. Big stone, steel, cement, concrete buildings. This is the previous headquarters of my, my organization. It's got no steel, no cement, no bricks, and no wood in it. It's made out of mud. 150 people were working in there, doing some of the most creative work, which you will see in one second. Uh, and it's a beautiful building, which in a city like Delhi, which goes up to 45 degrees centigrade, it has no air conditioning. So we're talking about a different choice of technology. And a choice of technology that, uh, and I have to tell you, Roger was very proud of this. I think deep down he understood that what we needed in different places was different. And it may even have some applications over here too. I have built a new headquarters building which is zero CFCs. This has come up now and it meets all standards that any good multinational company would like, and it's a platinum-rated lead, uh, platinum-level uh, lead rating. So it's possible to do, and this building saves approximately 40% uh, of the energy embodied, 50% for operations. It has, the only reason, the only reason it has an air conditioner in there, a special kind of a new kind of air conditioner, is because I couldn't get a platinum rating if I didn't have an air conditioner at all. The lead rating was designed for buildings that have a better air conditioner, but if you have no air conditioner, there's zero points. <laughs> no, but it's, this is the way life is. I mean, you know, that's, it's been, it was designed in Maryland for Americans, I guess, but it was designed by engineers who don't think through all the other possibilities. So those poor 400,000 women who die every year from pollution in the kitchen, we do a lot of work with them. Cleaner wood stoves, much less, much more efficient, much less fuel. Uh, we worked uh, to build, a, to design a whole lot of new building materials. This is unfired bricks, so you save one kilogram of coal for each brick. And that's big savings. Uh, 
This is a building that we built in the middle of Delhi. That's the Meridian Hotel. Uh, right out of the ground in 118 days, pure mud, 3% cement in it, so it could be exposed, stabilized. Um, Micro-concrete roofing tiles uh, create five jobs, total investment, $4,000, and uh, it's the cheapest roof roofing material in, in India today other than thatch. And it's not bad. You can see this is a house built entirely using our technologies, and it comes in at $5 a square foot. Even in India, that's not too bad. And it's so good that even middle-class families actually buy it. This is a new, totally new approach to making uh, technology to make bricks. These are burnt bricks, fired bricks, and it saves 55% energy, roughly 50% CO2. These are very dramatic changes. I mean, we're talking about whole new ways of doing things, and the, the mission of our organization being to create livelihoods, of which we have created now over the 25 years about 3 million jobs. These are technologies designed not to make somebody rich in, in Bombay or New York, but to create wealth in the community. This is a new kind of handloom, which this lady here, she used to earn 40 rupees a day weaving on the traditional loom, eight hours of retraining, and she's now making 160, four times as much. Simply good little improvements in the technologies. These women are making um, handmade recycled paper. 45 of them joined us roughly 20 years ago. Now, two years ago, we did a study. Uh, these, most of the 45 are still there, and I did what Roger would have done, go and find out what happened. And I asked them how many babies they have. We, we knew from our records how many maternity leaves there had been and so on. And there had been eight over the last 17 years, eight, 17 or 18 years, for the 45. Then we did a study with the same cohort, their sisters or cousins in the same villages, same age, and there had been 80. I mean, we're talking about a contraception that's really dramatic. The kind of investment that we made in that factory was a, per person to create one job was about $3,000. So we're talking about different ways to do things. And I hope you sort of see the hand of Roger Revelle in all of this. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of these on my own. I did think of them, but with the backlog of all the things that I learned from him. Um, anyway, we will go very quickly through the rest because I don't want to take up time. This is a weed that you just saw. Uh, in in uh, Latin, it's called ipomia. It came in as a stowaway from Costa Rica or somewhere 150 years ago with a, probably a coffee shipment or something. And today in Hindi, it's called Besharam, which means shameless. And across the border in Pakistan, my friends tell me it's called politician, probably for the same reason. <laughs> um, it just, you know, the more you cut it, the more it grows. And we converted it into a fuel by gasifying it, putting it through a gasifier, which was designed with uh, India's top technical university and put it, it right into a diesel engine. We sell this electricity cheaper than the grid and still make money. Quite a lot more profitable. This is probably my, my, my colleague's biggest impact. These are called check dams. They slow down the water. You must have seen dry steams in this country too. 
you have them in various places. But in India, virtually all rivers have gone, except for the two or three biggest ones. Three months, four months, five months in the year, they're dry. You can walk across them, you can grow melons in them, you can dry your clothes, but you can't, there's no water. Then, in the rainy season, there's a flash flood. You put this dam in, and that dam was, uh, cost us uh, $9,000. That dam basically slows down the water, fills up the aquifer, and it becomes a perennial river by the second season. With it, you now go from zero crops, which was a desert there, to three. The return on investment is about 2,000%. It's a no-brainer, except that it's impossible to do because the people who invest the money are different from the people who get the benefits. So you spend years and years trying to get them to understand how to work together. But it, it's doable. This is organic farming, wasteland development, uh, very simple technologies. We've got deserts all over the third world now, and you have to bring them back by simple, cheap technologies, contour trenching, keeping the cattle out for a while. Uh, within 15 months, you can have a verit veritable forest. Uh, it's not hard if you do things right. Greening the desert, biosaline agriculture. And now we're talking about going back to the kind of agriculture that makes sense. And a champagne glass that has suddenly become more like a beer glass, a glass that we can all drink from. And the fertility has come down radically. And the ecological footprint. And no longer an overshoot and collapse. Now my dream, with all respect to Roger, is to go for a factor of 50. And this is possible even today with some technologies, but we have to do a lot more. And this is where good science comes in. Uh, we will only be able to do this. This is, I suppose you would call it a horse jump. Um, this is beyond factor 10. This is the big time stuff. And it's going to depend more and more on what we learn from nature. Because nature does everything without creating waste, without creating any unemployment, at ambient temperatures and ambient pressures. Why do we have to have factories that use 1,000 degrees and 80 atmospheres of pressure and pushing things around when nature can do it for nothing? Well, let's have a look. Uh, I work with an organization called Zeri. I'm, I'm one of the founders of it. And we believe in disruptive technologies of various kinds. And here's an example. If you ask anyone what is the symbol of modernity, it, most people will even today say roads. Some may say cell phones, some may say television uh, or, or, or something else, but 90% of the people in the world want a road. Well, roads are really very good, but they're also extremely expensive. Not only are they expensive in terms of hard cash, they're also expensive in terms of ecology. You have to bring all that material in and disrupt river systems and everything else. They're terrible for hydrology because they mess up the the drainage and flows of water, and they bring people in, both during construction and afterwards, to places where they shouldn't be, the forests and wilderness and everything else. So you actually end up by paying a very, very large cost for roads. But nobody in the world can ask America or Europe to change that, because they've already got their sunk investment in this area. But Africa, South Asia, many parts of China even still, 
and certainly Latin America, are big, huge spaces. And if you're going to put roads in, there's going to be very little ecological health left for the planet. So you have to look at all the different possibilities, water transport, horse-drawn carriages, bicycles, uh, trains, um, cars. And by far the best turns out to be lighter than aircraft, airships, even blimps. There's no reason why India or Africa should be putting in millions of miles of road when they could do just as well like this. It's the, it's the equivalent of the cell phone. Why have landlines when you can do it wireless? And if you add the cost of the infrastructure, in other words, the car plus the, 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 the uh, roads, it becomes even worse. And if you then add the cost of the rucksacks that I was talking about earlier, then you're in a totally different ballgame. So actually, what we should be doing. But you know, scientists, no matter what Roger said, are not just driven by curiosity. Nobody in America is working on airships. So I have to have my scientists do that for themselves. And that was our argument. With Roger and me, we've got to build a scientific community that addresses our problems. I'm sorry I've taken so long, but I believe that this is really the future of India. If you were to calculate the ecological costs of roads that we would need to get somebody's grandmother to hospital or their grain to market, frankly, we're dead. And it goes into, really, the five kingdoms of nature. I showed you this picture earlier. This is a water treatment plant. But this is a water treatment plant. And that's a much better water treatment plant. That's the story of New York City in 1997, where they basically cleaned up the Catskills and got much better and much larger amounts of water. This is a project we're doing in Colombia, where we've converted savanna, completely impossible savanna. pH of the soils is 6, 5. There's one person living in four square kilometers. That he, because not many she's there, is a gun runner or a drug dealer or whatever. We've converted into a tropical forest within uh, 11 years with good scientific, very, very high-quality scientific inputs. And now uh, it is uh, the government of Colombia has given us 6.3 million hectares to do the same to expand it. So this is all about learning from nature, biomimicry. How, do you, how does nature you do colors without pigments? How does it pump water out of the air? How does it uh, have... Uh, plants live for 2,800 years? How does it uh, air condition the zebra? How does it uh, air condition the termite hill? Uh, this building is called Eastgate in Zimbabwe. Uh, is built on the principles of the termite hills and, um, and the zebra. It is basically no air conditioned either. They didn't get the lead rating. So we're writing this book uh, of nature's 100 best technologies. We've got a, a peer-reviewed technologies, 2,100 of them, which are all based on what nature does. They can retard fires without halogens or bromines. They can. This lizard is called the desert lizard in um, in uh, uh, the Sahara. Moves at speeds, phenomenal speeds under the under the sand, and you can learn for, uh, anti, how to get anti-friction 
and the University of Berlin is doing that. Um, uh, repel bacteria and mold without antibiotic resistance. You can make uh, vaccines which don't need refrigeration. Uh, this gentleman, Jorge Reynolds, is a Colombian who invented the pacemaker, the original pacemaker. Now, after 15 years of studying the whale's heart, he's made a pacemaker which needs no uh, invasive surgery and no battery. It uses the body, human body, to power it. So we are in a position now to do things very differently. Um, and I believe that this is the future. In my title, uh, the title of my talk, The Science of the Future. How do you get water out of uh, the air? This is a box fish. It doesn't look too aerodynamic, does it? But it's one of the, one of the most efficient designs for movement. And Daimler-Benz is now studying how to make a car based on that. <laughs> so there, you know, there's a lot of these things around. And if we don't do them, we're going to end up by needing two more worlds by the year 2030. And I feel I, can't, I don't have any words to express my gratitude to um, one of the two people who really made a difference in my life. Of course, one was my father and one was my other father. Always learning, deeply caring, and always teaching. So I want to thank the Ravel family for inviting me. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.